not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before that, I ministered from Luke chapter 15, and uh, you might remember it was the story of the prodigal son, and on that Sunday evening, uh, I ministered what I felt like the Lord had given me for that evening, and it was a message that just focused on two phrases that that son used whenever he was interacting with his father. The first sentence that he used was, he said, Father, give me. And then the second phrase, once he had returned, he'd come to himself, he'd returned to the father's house, and he had rehearsed this speech. And it was no longer a speech or a mentality of, Father, give me, but it had shifted. It had, it had transformed and it had matured to the place where now the son was saying, Father, make me. Father, make me. And one of the points that I wanted to emphasize that I felt like the Lord was ministering to me about was that that individual, he was a son both times. He was a son whenever he asked the Father to give him, and he was a son whenever he asked the Father to make him into something. But the Father, our Heavenly Father, desires that each and every one of us reach the place where we start to mature, not leaving that language of give me behind and forsaking it altogether because it is a good thing to ask the Lord for things that we have need of. That's appropriate. Jesus said to ask and, and knock and, and to seek after him. But we have to get to the place where we recognize that there's more to being a son of God than just what we can get from him. In fact, our Heavenly Father would like to give us a revelation that there is a way of living for Him and being a son of His that involves less of Him giving and more of Him making and how powerful that is. And I want to branch off of that a little bit tonight. I want to stay in that same vein of ministry. And tonight, we're just going to dig and dig and dig and dig a little bit and just see what the Holy Ghost will do. But I believe that by the end of our time together, I think the Holy Ghost is going to move in a powerful way, not because of me, but because his word is going to be released, and he's faithful, and he desires to do a work even here tonight. Amen? So if you would, turn with me in your Bible. You can remain seated because I'm going to do a, a little bit of reading. But as you're turning to Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, does anyone know that slogan, uh, Doing the most good. Whose slogan is that? Anybody know? Anyone heard of that? That's their slogan. It's a, it's a group of people, an organization, and their slogan is doing the most good. They're out ringing bells. Right now, yeah, it's the Salvation Army. Their slogan is doing the most good. Doing the most good. And... It's one of the themes that uh, it's really irrelevant. I just thought of them today because one of the themes that comes up in the book of Titus is doing good works, doing good. So I, if I were to make a theme out of it, I would identify it just the theme from the, from the book of the Bible, Titus, and, and the theme is do good, do good. And Titus was written by Paul to a younger minister named Titus, who was in Crete 
Crete is an island. It's a very, it was back then a very heavily populated island. They used to call it the island of a hundred cities. And there's two parts to this letter of Titus. The first part, in general terms, the first part has to do with the leadership and the health of the church. And the second part has to do with the mission and message of the church. And the thing that kind of holds the entire letter together, as I already mentioned, is six times the idea of good works is mentioned. You can look, there's only three chapters, so you can kind of look and you can maybe do what I've done in my Bible. I've underlined it with one of my red ink pens each time that it shows up. And it's six times in the letter of Titus. And the first time isn't until the very end of chapter one. So guess what? We get to read the entire first chapter because we got to get to the good works part. So let's do it. Titus chapter one in the New King James Version. Here's what it says. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior, to Titus, our true, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Verse 5. For this reason, Paul gets right to it. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Appoint elders in every city, as I have commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Verse 10, for why? Why is all of this necessary? Verse 10 starts to tell us. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's quite an quite a indictment against a whole people group, but there it is. And then Paul, Paul says they say this about themselves, and then verse 13 says, This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. 
I want to pray together right now and ask the Lord if he would just give us revelation tonight, if he would just help us to understand and to have a heart to respond to his word. Would you do that with me? Let's lift up our hands in faith right now and say, God, we're calling upon you right now as an assembly, as a body that's gathered together in faith. Lord, we are under the authority of your word. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth and that would find ears to hear and hearts ready to receive what you have for the church in this hour. Lord, bring this letter to life in our hearing tonight. Lord, do it by the power of your spirit and allow your word to come to life for each and every individual, for each and every household. Grow us and edify us. Let us be built up into the image of what you would have us to be in this hour so that we can accomplish everything that you have placed us on this earth to do in this generation. And Lord, we will give you the praise and exalt you in all things. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And church said, amen. Amen. First, I want to take a step back and I want to tell you what Ephesians chapter 2 says about this matter of good works and doing good. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, that's your works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, that's talking about you, you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for what reason? For good works. God has created something new inside of every born-again person under the sound of my voice. He has created something new in you. There has been a new spark of the Holy Ghost that has ignited inside of you, and he has created you, and you are his workmanship, and he has done it all so that you can be somebody who does good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to tell somebody before we go any further into the text or any more into this topic this evening that some of you are struggling and some of you have trouble believing that you can do good. I want to say unequivocally in the Holy Ghost right now, you are designed to do good. You are designed to be successful in the Spirit. Some of you battle an internal struggle in your life with the idea that you can move beyond your past because of what you used to be before you came to the Lord. Or maybe what you did happened last week even, after you came to the Lord. You struggle and you have trouble every day because you struggle and you grind out an existence not sure if you really believe if you can do good, if you can be the kind of person that God has envisioned for you. I'm in the Holy Ghost already tonight because I've come to tell somebody that you need to let me teach for a minute and explain what the Word of God says for you. I know that sin corrupts and breaks and damages, but remember what image you are made in. Genesis chapter 1 tells your origin story that when God created man, he created man in his image. And he didn't just create you good. He called you very good. 
There's something intrinsically inside of you that's imprinted as part of your humanity that says no matter how far sin takes you, there is something that God still wants to recover out of your life. He doesn't want you to live confused. He doesn't want you to live broken. He doesn't want you to live the victim. But he says there's good inside of you. And by the power of his spirit, he wants to draw it out of you. You are his workmanship. And he set forth this plan for you in motion before time began. If you have been born again, listen to these words of the Apostle Paul from Colossians. He says, you have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of of its creator. There's something inside of you that stirs when the word of God goes forth like it's going forth right now that that identifies and that resonates with what the spirit is ministering through this room right now. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24 commands us. He says, put on the new self. Put on the new self because that's the part of you that's created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Let me pause there. I told a story last Sunday night when I was preaching about that prodigal son, and I went back to 1 Samuel, and I told the story about little Samuel and how his mom, Hannah, would bring him a garment every year. They'd bring him a new linen ephod because he would grow year after year, and they'd bring him a new one that fit him for that season. And I made the point that even though they brought it to him, and even though it fit him perfectly, Samuel still had to decide to wear it. He had to decide what he was going to be about. And the Apostle Paul in the Holy Ghost has written a letter to them and to you and commanded you, if you've been born again of the water and of the Spirit, you have a garment that you can put on, and it's called the new self. He said you need to put it on, and you need to wear it talking tonight about doing good. There's potential locked up inside of you. There's a plan of God that's locked up inside of you. You don't listen to the voice of the adversary that tries to convince you that you've gone too far and that you're too broken and that you're too messed up and that you can't overcome what you used to be or that you can't overcome what happened even yesterday. You need to recapture that song that the psalmist wrote when he said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You can do good. Your old nature can't do it, though. It's got to be your new nature. It's got to be in Christ. Only then can you do what the preacher's preaching about tonight. I bind the lie of the adversary that would try to tell any child of God that you aren't cut out for this. You are designed to do good. Those lies of the adversary. Those lies of the adversary that tries to tell you that you're not good enough and that you don't have that good that the Holy Ghost, that the Spirit of God, that the Word of God testifies about. That lie of the adversary, hear me, only works on a child of God that has determined that they're going to live in the give me mentality and never mature into what God has to make you into. It's when we come to ourselves as sons and daughters of God that we step into an arena where there's a revelation that takes place and those lies of the adversary that try to speak condemnation over you 
Those lies of the adversary that tell you that you've just got to park where you are. There's nothing more for you in God. There's no further. You've done so many things that disqualify you. There's no possible way you could answer the call of God. That lie of the adversary cannot penetrate whenever a child of God makes up in their mind to go to the Father and say, Father, I want you to make me. Make me into something different. Make me into something new. God, draw something out of me that the world can't draw out of me that I can't draw out of me, but your spirit can develop and shape and form something in me that's powerful and holy. There is a make me prayer going up in this generation that's walking the earth right now. And the shield of that kind of faith won't allow any of those lies of the adversary to penetrate anymore. There is therefore now no condemnation. To those that walk in the Spirit, to those that answer the call of God and get beyond just the, what can I get from God? And get to the place where they say, what can I be for God? That son or daughter of God that is submitted to being shaped and formed by Jesus Christ has power and authority that others simply do not have. Remember all those gifts that 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 young man received when he went back home and he had come to himself and he had matured and gotten that revelation to the point where he moved from give me and he came to the place of make me. He received that robe, he received those shoes, and he received a ring. That ring symbolized the power and the authority and the ability to do business in the name of the Father. And there is a power and an authority that a son of God has when he makes up his mind that I'm going to be surrendered and yielded to the power of God in my life that other people simply don't have access to yet. When the son was in give me mode, he had blessings. He had things that looked like blessings, that looked like things were going you looked at his, his, the column of his income and you looked at all the abundance and you would have thought that everything was going just the way that it should be. But when the son entered make me mode, he got a ring and it signified something even more than all of his inheritance that he had gotten before. And those who get into a make-me mentality are like unto those that the book of Acts says turned the world upside down. They start operating in a dimension of spiritual power and authority. Mountains start moving when you put on that ring and you get to the make-me place in your relationship with God. When you recognize that God has placed something special inside of you that he wants to develop, that he wants to nurture, and that he wants to bring to pass, you'll start walking in a different realm of the Holy Ghost. There's going to be different things. Mountains are going to start to move. Disease starts drying up. Demons start to flee and tremble and be cast out. Supernatural provision starts to come down from heaven. Does anybody know what I'm talking about right now? Am I too far out there? Did I eat too much Thanksgiving turkey? I just get to thinking about what the Lord, I get to thinking about the potential that is in the church. And it just, it just sends me over the edge. Because if we really believe that we've got 
the Holy Spirit of God living and indwelling inside of us means we've got an unlimited, an infinite amount of potential of spiritual power and authority that can be exercised. If you think you can do good, if you think you can do good with the, The son in that story, he got his inheritance at the beginning. Am I right? He went and he demanded it. Can I tell you that that really amounts to spiritual pocket change compared to what he got when he come home? And if you think you can do good with the spiritual pocket change version of what God can do in your life, just wait until you realize that that same father is the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Wait until you realize that somewhere on his, in his house there's a shelf and on it there sits a ring that you get to wear and you can conduct business in the name of your heavenly father and that nothing is off limits for you anymore. Mm-mm-mm-mm. His plans are beyond comprehension. No one can calculate how much he's got stored up, how much grace, how much mercy. Hear me tonight, young person, mom and dad, grandma or grandpa. If you submit to God and you get connected to spiritual maturity, there is a tremendous amount of good that you can do. The letter of Titus is one of those very, very practical letters in the New Testament. We don't spend a lot of time in it because it is so practical. It is just right out there and he just gets down to business and starts saying some things. But now that we're all persuaded that this is the will of God, that I think that we're in one mind and one accord, that there are some things that if we will take a step of faith into a different place of maturity in our relationship with him, that there's just a tremendous amount of potential that God wants to release and that God's word is so wise. He knows what we sometimes forget, that what we consistently do is a byproduct of who we really are. And who you really are is really just another way of saying your character. Your character. God puts a big clarifying reminder. I said it a minute ago, and you noticed it when we read together. That theme of doing good works, doesn't. it shows up a lot in this short letter, but it doesn't show up until the very last verse of chapter 1. And that's because God had to deal with some other stuff before he got there. And we read it together, and so you probably already picked up on the fact that there's a whole paragraph that just talks about character. Character matters to God. It's not all about what you do, but it's undergirded and supported by who you are. Look at that paragraph starting in verse 6. If you've got a Bible open next to you or you're next to somebody who has one, Look at verse 6 of Titus chapter 1, and let's read several of these verses together. It says, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, bishop must be blameless, steward of God, steward of, as a a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent. Not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. 
holding fast the faithful word has been taught that he may be able to, by sound doctrine, to exhort those and convict those who contradict. Can I read also an accompanying passage? Because sometimes we can read a paragraph like that and we can see all those character attributes and certainly those are for particular individuals in the church. They're for overseers and things like that. But these are Christian attributes. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5. And Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 and 23 outlines what the fruit of the Spirit is supposed to look like. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Temperance is another word for what is in Titus chapter 1. It's called self-control. Can we just pause? And, and there's a lot we could say about each of these attributes, and we could take up the entire remainder of the night and go long into the night talking about each of them. But can we just recognize that self-control almost seems like in our day and age to be the crown jewel of spiritual fruit? That if you can have some version of self-control some degree of self-control in your life, it will automatically, it seems, set you apart from so much of what's going on in the world today just to have a godly measure of what the Bible calls self-control. God says this is the kind of person that you have to be because there's only one way to successfully combat bad doctrine and false doctrine and false teaching, which is what Paul has going on at Crete, there's people going around teaching goofy things and, and spouting a bunch of nonsense and confusing people, and they're having to do battle against this stuff. And Paul, Paul in the Holy Ghost, writes to Titus and reminds him and us of what we sometimes forget. We want to go and do and do and do and do. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that we have to have this foundation of character built in before we go any further. There's only one way to successfully come against some of the devices of the enemy and some of the, how many know that there's some pretty convincing arguments being made in our world today? Maybe not convincing on their own merits, but just, but just by the volume. It's like, you're, like you, you turn on any form of media, it's like getting it through a fire hose. It's not that they're making good arguments. If you know how to make a good argument, you can see a weak argument. But it's just the sheer volume that it's coming at us is almost overwhelming. It's almost overwhelming. And if we're going to combat any of that, if we're going to be able to combat the devices of the enemy and the things that are going on in our world and even some of the things we engage with personally on, a, on our day-to-day -day life, there's only one way that we're going to powerfully do it. And it's by letting the Holy Ghost take that place in us and shape it and mold us into the kind of person that possesses the characteristics and the attributes of the Spirit of God. It's not going to be with more eloquent words. It's not going to be because we're charming. It's not going to be because we're polished. It's not going to be because we are smarter. It's going to be with the power of character. Character. Because it's character. Good, godly established character in a person's life that empowers good works. We've got to go beyond character, and we've got to get our feet dusty and in the arena, 
And we've got to get down to doing good works and doing things in the world that we're living in and engaging with people and get involved in the fight and pushing back the darkness of this world. But it comes from a place, a launch pad of godly character that the Apostle Paul is outlining here. He says that poor character will disqualify good works. He says those that don't possess character, and he goes on to talk about them beginning in verse 10. He says there are many that are insubordinate. He says we've got to be this way because there are others who are this way. There's many that are subordinate, insubordinate, idle talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped. And he goes on, and he says that the only thing that's going to overcome that kind of influence, how many know that there's those kind of influences in our world today? The only thing that's going to effectively and consistently overcome those kinds of influences in our world is godly character. Godly character. He says some people just need to be silenced. They need to be silenced. They can't be allowed to exert influence within the church. He's talking about those that are espousing false doctrines, those that have distracting teachings that are leading people astray and watering down the gospel. He says those people have to be, those kind of messages must be silenced. Now, there is a word here for pastors and overseers of the church, but I want, and I want, I want to tell you that, that we take it seriously. Anybody in leadership at the church takes it seriously when the Scripture tells us that these are things that we have to protect and guard against, and this is an admonition from Scripture that we see clearly and we obey and we're submitted to. But there is a word here not just for one or two or three or four people, but a word here for the church at large. And let me translate it into something for the benefit of all of us tonight. There are influences not just in the church, but there are influences that should not have a voice in your home and in your life. This passage happens to be directly talking about a young man named Titus who was set up as the lead overseer on this island of Crete. He was going to be setting up elders and pastors and people in each city and each church and, and having groups of people that were responsible for the church in different places. And he was doing so because things had to be set up in order and things had to be done in an orderly fashion because there was confusion that was creeping in. There were people who were being led astray. Things were starting to get a little bit out of control. And so things had to come into order. And so Paul told Timothy, or Titus, this is what you got to do in Crete. And so there's a direct word in this text that is just for a particular set of circumstances. But there is a broader word for anybody else that is living as a child of God. There are influences that should not be allowed to have a voice in your life or in your home. Just like the pastor is supposed to oversee and guard the church against voices that are in doctrinal error or voices that are in poor character. If you're an adult in this room, you're called on to guard your household, your family, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, and yourself against any of the influences that would try to spiritually corrupt you. We can't say it enough. So I'm going to be direct. 
we need to be vigilant about the culture of our home. You need to be vigilant and on guard and intentional about the culture of your home. Brother Dustin, what do you mean by that? Paul called out three things, starting at verse 10 and going all the way down to verse 16 at the end of Titus chapter 1. He, ident- he doesn't say the words, but I'll put it in, I'm, I'm grouping it together, and you'll see it for yourself. He identifies three things. He says there are motivations, there are perversions, and there are hypocrisies. And he says there are mouths that must be stopped. These things are things that must not be allowed to exert influence in our life in our home, in our children, in our grandchildren, in anybody that we have influence over, every saint of God is called upon to be a spiritual leader for those that are under their influence and those that are around them. Those things should not be tolerated. And it all begins at home. I told you we were going to dig, and then we're going to dig a little bit more, and then we're going to dig even yet a little bit more, and we're, now we're getting down to it. The culture of our home is important. You know what culture is? Culture is when you're able to say, that's just the way we do it around here. That's the culture. That's the culture. So let me give you a a silly example. Um, Who takes out the trash? You know? Uh, Who vacuums? Who washes the dishes? Who cuts the grass? doesn't really matter as long, I mean, can we agree that it doesn't really matter as long as it gets done? But the person that does it and the manner in which it is done and the timing with which it is done, it might, it's going to vary from house to house probably because everyone's going to have different routines and different rhythms and different people living in the house under the same roof and there's going to be different things that are sorted out and that's going to become interwoven and that's a very superficial example, understand, but that stuff's going to become woven into the culture of what the expectations look like in our home. Is everyone tracking with me? The culture, the spiritual culture of our home is what we come down to and we say, this is the way we do it here. And the culture of our home has to be grown and protected spiritually. Spiritually. Because the home is the incubator. The home is the greenhouse. The home is the place where real change and real growth happens. We think sometimes that it happens here, and there's powerful things that happens here, but the things that happen here should just be a carryover. All right. I know that's backwards. I know that's, that's, we would like for it to be the other way around. I would like for it to, I mean, it would be more convenient for me as a dad, as a husband, for it to be to where I could have some place that I pull in and I do a spiritual drive-through. And someone hands me a, a bag through the window and I'm able to go off, Brother Bobby, and just, boom, I've got it. I've got what I need. There it is. All my needs are met. I've got everything I need. It's gonna sustain me for the week. Everybody in my household, everybody that I'm responsible for is going to be healthy and great and doing good, and we're going to be on the right track, and we can just set it on cruise until the next time I go and do the drive through again. And that, that's the way we do everything else in our world, right? We do everything else that way. 
I can't tell you the last time I went grocery shopping inside the supermarket. I go and pick up one or two things, but my wife does the order thing, and I get dispatched to go and pick it up. I drive up, and the guy, I was at the, the super center last night, and the guy's, un, he's loading my stuff in, and, he's, and I don't even know what we're getting. I don't even know what they're putting in the truck. She's placed the order. It's a surprise for me. I don't know if it's a small order, a big order. I don't know if there's anything that I like in it. I don't know. I don't know. But there's a girl that comes up, and she comes up to the driver's side window while he's unloading the stuff into my truck, and she says, did you by chance have another order? Did you have two orders? And I said, I don't know. I don't think so. And she's like, you're not Nelson? I said, well, it depends on what Nelson had in his order. And she got to laugh, and I said, no, I'm not Nelson. No, I do not have two orders. But that's the way everything works, right? Businesses that don't operate like that nowadays, they start going down on the graph. Their profits start, I mean, they start crashing because they haven't met the felt needs of everybody in society because we think that that's the way, that's just the way that needs are met that's the way I get what I need, is I just do it on my phone, and I drive up, and they just put it all in the vehicle, and I drive off until next time. That's not the way that it works in the kingdom. I am very sad to say. I wish that there would be a reorganization of things to where the Lord would get with the times. And I say that, I'm not, I'm not being blasphemous. I'm just saying, I wish that there would be a software update. But brothers and sisters, it's not coming. <laughs> the way it is, is it does not happen primarily here. God's plan is and always has been for the home to be the hub of spiritual activity spiritual encouragement, and spiritual growth. It's the way that it is. You can try, you can, you can, we can try to do it a different way. If, if you want to, you can try to do it a different way. You're going to be, it's going to be like shadow boxing. It's going to be like, it, it's going to be bad. It, it, you're you're going to be frustrated. You're going to live frustrated. You're going to live up and down. It's, you're going to be all over the map. It's not going to be the best case scenario. It has to begin at home. Paul says there's three things. He says the motivations need to be checked. This is in verse 11. He says these people are teaching things, and they're teaching things not to build people up. He said, but they're teaching things. King James Version says filthy lucre. I've never said, I've never used that word that way, but it just means for money. They're lying in their own pockets. Their motivations are off. So let me ask this. I'm just going to ask. These, these, this is the time where I, I get, we just dig even yet deeper. And I just ask the questions, and you just kind of meditate on it a little bit. What drives everyone at your house? What values dictate the decision-making process? What's the motivation? What motivates? How, does, how do expectations get shaped? Because these are the things that set the boundaries in our life. The, the expectations set the boundaries in our life. 
and it manifests itself in little ways. Let me give you a couple examples. This may seem small, but the difference between we have to go to church and we get to go to church reveals an entire backdrop of motivations. What we talk about at the supper table, whether we're talking about gossip or nonsense or idle talk or whether there's mention of the word, of what the Lord is doing, of what the message was like on Sunday or Wednesday or what the Lord is revealing to you in his word, those things all reveal a backdrop of motivations and expectations. Paul told Timothy what was going on in Crete. He says, these people are doing this and their motivations are wrong. They're doing things for the sake of dishonest gain. Their motives were out of order. And so Titus was going to have to set things in order. And I would submit to you that that's not just a word for church government, but it's a word for the home. There are things that need to be set in order. And, our, and motivations and expectations is one of them. Let's look at the next one, perversion. Perversion. Paul called it out. He said there are those who are going around and they're to- teaching these Jewish myths and fables. And they're teaching them and they're teaching the commandments of men who turn from the truth. And he says to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. Now, that last verse, verse 15, that's been used and twisted to justify a whole lot of nonsense and worldly living. The topic addressed in Titus was that there was people going around, and one of the main concerns was dietary laws. They were trying to, get, they were trying to have people still eat kosher and say, this is a matter of heaven or hell. You can't eat that. You have to eat this. And they were trying to sort everything through the filter of the Old Testament law. And it just didn't have to be that way anymore. And so when Paul says pure and impure there, he's not talking about anything in our life that we want to pin that to, to justify it for our own sakes. He's talking about it in a very particular context. He's using that sentence to address a specific set of circumstances about food in there. So let's, I just, that's a footnote. We can't import that into everything that we want to justify. We just can't do it. So let me apply it like this. A confused teacher will create confused students. A spiritually confused parent will train up spiritually confused young people. The days are clipping by. Time goes by so quickly. Doesn't it seem like time just goes by so quickly? Mom and dad, grandparents, this is your hour to step up. Everyone, just look at me for a minute. If you have a heartbeat to do good, Start by doing right by the next generation. They don't need more perversion or confusion. They don't need more bad expectations or wrong motivations. They need it to be right at home. They need it to be right with anybody in their extended family. Whatever point of contact you have with them, moms and dads, grandparents, this is your hour to step up. Time's going by so quickly. I was talking to somebody just the other day. It's the holiday season now, and, and we were just talking, and I wasn't, I wasn't 
making any big point about it. We were just talking, and I said, you know, I said, when we started having kids, we kind of just made the decision, and everyone's got to do what seemeth right to them. <laughs> but I said, we just kind of made a decision that as long as we have kids that are young, uh, we're just going to be at home on Christmas. We might go and travel and, and go other, you know, and see, see relatives and stuff other times in the month. But when it comes to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we're just going to be at, at our house. And we did that because I, I, I imagine it's probably not something that happened on our own. It's probably some older person that imparted some wisdom into our life. But we recognized somehow that we've got a limited window of time. You all know how my children, you know, I mean, they're, they're young, but it's going to be the blink of an eye. And that season's going to be over. And I'm going to be going to their house for Christmas. <laughs> right? It's going to happen just that fast if the Lord tarries. It frightens me to say so, but it's going to happen just that fast. Moms and dads, this is our hour. I'm talking about the culture of the home. We've got to get it right. We may not get it perfect, but we've got to get it right. This is our hour to step up and to do the right thing. The days are clipping by so quickly. You need to iron out your doctrine. You need to iron out your doctrine. I'm not talking about your personal, personalized. I'm talking about you need to get a hold of it for yourself. And you need to pass that into the next generation. You need to establish your convictions and live them. You need to, if, if, if you need to straighten out your spiritual disciplines, straighten out your spiritual disciplines. Start one piece at a time. Just start somewhere. Get any trace of worldliness that you can out of your home and make a deliberate effort that I'm just going to impart spiritual things that are not going to pervert or confuse my children in the next generation. A lukewarm home environment will produce ice cold and carnal Christians. If the home I'm going to say it again. If the home environment is lukewarm spiritually, you're not going to get lukewarm next generation. They're going to be ice cold and carnal. Unless, unless something comes along and bucks the trend. It's just like the proverb. Train up a child in the way they should go. When they're old, they won't depart from it. Does that work out 100% of the time? No, it doesn't. It's proverbial. That's the nature of a proverb. But it's good wisdom because more often than not, what you sow, you're going to reap. Every child's going to reach the point in their life where they have to make decisions for themselves. And that's going to, at some point, be between them and the Lord. But what we sow, we're going to reap. And if the culture of our home is spiritually lukewarm, we can all but be certain that it's going to produce a certain kind of person spiritually. And it's going to be somebody that's not on fire for God. Brings me to the third thing that the Apostle Paul, he talked about there's certain mouths that need to be, the mouths of these things need to be stopped. The first one is motivations that are out of order. The second one was perversions. And the third is hypocrisy. 
hypocrisy, and it's in verse 16. Nothing will cripple, nothing will cripple the next generation faster than seeing one thing in public and another thing in private. Stay with me. I know we're starting to get distracted because we're right in all of our kitchen right now. There's a lot of things that we, we could be distracted by right now. Let's lift up our hands right now. Let's just refocus for just a couple more minutes. Can we lift up our hands right now and just say from one side of the room to the other, let's just say, Lord, I want you to, Lord, I want you to speak to my heart right now. I want you to challenge me. I want you to convict me. Lord, I want you to do something in my spirit that needs to be done. I yield myself to it, God. I yield myself and I submit myself to the authority of your word. Lord, I want to be changed. I want to be like you. I want to do it for my children, for my spouse, for my loved ones, for my grandchildren, for anybody that I have influence with. Lord, I want to do it so that you can be glorified and so that they and we might be saved. Nothing will cripple the next generation. Nothing will cripple the next generation faster than the hypocrisy of seeing one thing in public and another thing in private. One set of values in one setting and another set of values in another setting. Hypocrisy, just like bad motivations, just like perversion, Hypocrisy must be silenced. It must be silenced. You need to cut it off at its root. And the antidote to hypocrisy, and I know hypocrisy is a word that nobody wants to ever, ever identify with any part of my life that might be hypocritical. But the antidote to hypocrisy is integrity. Integrity just means oneness. You're not broken up into fractions. You're not compartmentalized. There's one you. You're one way here, and you're the same way at home. You're the same way at school. You're the same way at work. You're the same way at home. You're the same way in the prayer room. You're the same way at the altar. You're the same way in the car. You're the same way when you're in a crowd of people, and you're the same way when it's just you and God. That's integrity. That's what the Lord desires for you. Verse 16 says, they profess to know God, but in works, they deny him. That's the essence of hypocrisy. And it says that whenever they walk down this road, when we have these things in the culture of our homes and lives, and we don't do the work of silencing them, like the Apostle Paul is calling us to do, what happens is it disqualifies us from good works. Very last words of verse 16. It disqualifies us. King James Version, I think, says reprobate. Just, it makes us disqualified for doing good. Neglecting these things will result in disqualification. Neglecting these things will drive you away from God. Why do you think Paul wrote so directly to Titus? It results in living for God by your fingernails. That's what neglecting these things, it just, it results in being pushed out of the body. When you get somebody, something in your body that's a foreign entity in your natural body, your body, the way it's designed, it naturally tries to 
push out and to drive out that foreign thing, that, that thing that doesn't have the same DNA as it has. It tries its best to fight it and to drive it out. And it's not personal. It's, not, it's nature. It's the way that things are set up. And spiritually, the same thing will happen because there were those that were not guarding the culture of their life. They were not guard, guarding the culture of their home. And they stood out to the apostle Paul and he commissioned Titus and said, these things have to be set in order. And if if it means that some get driven out in silence, then that's what's going to happen. And if we neglect these things in our lives, brothers and sisters, we put ourselves in a spiritual position that we are going to be driven out from the body. And it's not going to be personal, and it's not going to be a vendetta, and it's not going to be anybody offending anybody else. It's going to be a spiritual reality that takes place when you, the spiritual DNA of your life becomes such that it does not match up with what the Holy Ghost is doing in the body. And other things become more attractive. If there's ever been a day when we need apostolic straight talk from a letter like Titus, it's today. It's today. Let's lift up our hands all over this place one more time. Would you just seek the Lord and be sensitive to the Holy Ghost? Come on, son or daughter of God. This is your hour. This is your hour. This is your time. You are designed for what I'm exhorting us about tonight. You can do good. Come on. It'd be all right. This would be be a moment where you could stand to your feet. We're we're winding down, and it's time to start to respond. And we're going to start to respond in the Spirit right now. But we're going to go to a place right now where the Lord wants to do a work in our lives. You can do good. I'm speaking life over somebody right now. Don't come away feeling condemned or feeling reprimanded or feeling rebuked tonight. But if there's conviction in your spirit right now, if you need to get some things in order in your life, there's a good thing that God desires to do in your life. Brother or sister, you can walk uprightly. You can live in the will of God. You can be equipped for every good work. You you need to consider what happening right now an altar call. You can make a difference. These altars are open right now and I would that some child of God would stand to their feet and say I'm going to be the one. I can make a difference in my family. I can be that person of faith in my friends group. You've struggled even today to believe what this preacher is preaching about right now. You've, you've heard the voice of the enemy try to tell you you can't do good today because of what happened last week. You've said to yourself, I can never do it because of the person that I used to be. That's a parodical spirit in your life right now. You need to do like that parodical son and you need to have a moment of revelation where you come to yourself even right now that says, I can live better than this. I can do good, but I can't do it here. I can't do it right where I'm at. I've got to take some steps. I've got to make a move. That's where we are right now, brothers and sisters. Hear the voice of the Spirit calling you to a different place in your walk with God. Paul was telling Titus, Son, it's time to step into a new level of spiritual maturity. You're going to have to develop a prayer language that says, God, make me. Make me. Make me, Father. 
Some were already responding, but I would. I'd make one final call right now, and then I'm not going to say it again. You need to find a place of prayer and consecration at one of these altar spaces or maybe in your seat where you are, but you need to make a deliberate focus toward God right now. Moms and dads, I'm calling you for right now. I'm calling grandparents right now. It's about the culture of our home. The days are flashing by, one after the other. We're going to blink, and it's going to be another year that's gone by. And the culture of our home is going to be shaping the lives of the next generation. It's going to be steering the future of your children and your grandchildren. Oh, I wish there was a Titus here who was set on being a difference maker to their family, to their friend group, to their neighborhood. I wish that there was even just one that would hear the call of the Spirit for this generation and say, God, make me. I want to be an influence. I want to be a difference maker. I want to be a part of the body. been filled with the Holy Ghost, you need to make a move right now. You need to get out from where you're at. You just need to, in faith, don't be an indictment against yourself right now. If you've got the Holy Ghost, you need to be moving. You need to be, you need to be acting on what's going on in the Spirit right now. Because the Spirit of God is calling us. I know, I know it's just a sleepy November Wednesday night, but the Holy Ghost is moving and active and drawing, and the days of the Lord are drawing to a close, and He's going to return for His church. There's work to be done, there's good to be done. He's calling on somebody to do good. It's not time to check out, it's not time to to rest on your laurels, but it's time to do good. It's time to become re-energized with the call of God. Come on, it's going to take more surrender. It's going to take more submission. It's going to take more conviction and consecration.